It's Muppeturgy with a runaway episode about the Crystal Gale episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, and Christy Bauer. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. Uh, this is a weird addition, but um, I learned just the other day, because social media is still good sometimes, that France's last execution by guillotine was on September 10th, 1977. And of course, being me, the first thing I thought of was the Stayin' Alive number in the Helen Reddy episode. And so I looked that up again, and it aired on September 18th, 1978. So just one year and one week after the last actual execution by guillotine, which timely. is bonkers and timely. <laughs> And sad and weird. Here is a Muppet News Flash. Okay, so this week and this year in the past that is not 1977, we are talking about Season 4, Episode 2 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of May 1st, 1979, and it aired in New York on December 31st, 1979. Happy New Year. Uh, that was number 12 in the air order, so we have jumped ahead quite a bit. That was between Phyllis George and Diane Cannon, which means nothing to us yet and won't for several weeks. In the paper, I thought it would be a slow news day because it was a holiday, and boy was I wrong. So here we go. There is a picture on the front page of the Times Square ball being prepared. There's an article about people who are going roller skating for New Year's Eve, but couldn't necessarily decide where to go. And the ball drop will include lasers, which feels like a very 1979 thing and which the New York Times seemed excited about. But in Saturn news... Richard Rogers has died at age 77. We have talked about Mr. Rogers on this podcast many times, and I'm sure will again. There are multiple articles about the Soviets who are said to deploy troops to rebellious areas of Afghanistan, and we know how that turned out. Uh, Margaret Thatcher is very disturbed by this. For once, I agree with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I want there to be a band called Margaret Thatcher is very disturbed. <laughs> it was a separate article. Like there was like, the, the front page article about Afghanistan, and then there were like several more inside, including one specifically about Margaret Thatcher being unhappy. Time Magazine's Man of the Year is the Ayatollah Khomeini. That also feels like a very 1979 thing. Lest you think we are very New York centric, we are. But firefighters are on strike in Kansas City. That that sounds bad. <laughs> the space shuttle is having development problems. A five-year study of child support in Michigan, published this month, has proposed the establishment of a nationwide system of direct child support deductions from wages as the best remedy to a problem. You think? And here's a not-actually-fun one for our present-day New Yorkers. On Saturday, Mayor Ed Koch said that the police officers assigned to work overtime in the subway system had been limited in their effectiveness and that he was ending the program, an wow, argument wow. we are still having today. Wow. There's a fun little piece about calendars, because it is New Year's Eve. From years past, as far as calendars are concerned, we best remember the pinup and the winter landscape. But for 1980, instead of the timeless and often innocuous images of the past, calendars are appealing to people with the special interests of the present. It is wild to me that this innovation only arrived in 1980 because it seems like that's just how calendars work for the muscle conscious there is an arnold schwarzenegger calendar with exercises architectural digest had one that cost 20 dollars, which is 79 dollars in today's money no okay, that you. alone that is crazy that inflation. i know <laughs> um but also 20 dollars is like not 
I mean, twenty dollars. I guess is right, but like not in their money. Like I don't know. That's weird. And back to quoting, Miss Piggy was the surprise bestseller. Said Edward Stoddard, president of Doubleday Bookshops, about the success of the six ninety five, much more appropriate calendar on which the Muppet heroine changes costumes monthly. We talked about that in our Muppets Go Hollywood bonus episode. Yeah, but who's surprised that she's a bestseller? Mr. Edward Stoddard, president of the Doubleday Bookshops. All well, right. remember, this is Miss Piggy in the Ascendant. She is like a newly christened superstar. I mean, so is yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, so. right? Like, there's, you know, they're right. they're both on the rise. Uh, yeah, that calendar cost twenty seven forty nine in today's dollars, which feels like a lot for calendar. Still feels like a lot for calendar, but much more reasonable than the eighty dollar one. Muscle conscious is quite the euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, with exercises, Christy. <laughs> It's not just to look at, it's to it's to do it. Just reading it for the articles. <laughs> In movies, the first two ads right next to each other on the movies page are All That Jazz and Star Trek The Motion Picture. So that felt like it was made just for me. But also, one of my very earliest memories like at all ever is of seeing Star Trek The Motion Picture in a movie theater with my dad. And if you recall that movie, it opens with a very, very slow scene and then continues to have many more very, very slow scenes. But the opening scene is entirely in Klingon with subtitles. And you probably could read yet at this point. Correct. I mean, I could, but not that. And it is followed by a very long scene in the Vulcan in subtitles. <laughs> and I, and then it is like, a you know, if you were like a, a kid who was watching Star Trek original series and reruns as I was like, this is not the same really at all. Uh, and there's like a horrible transporter accident. Like it's, it is rough, and I distinctly remember like the, the scene in Klingon, and my dad being like, "Oh no, <laughs> oh. what did I do?" Um, but it feels very relevant to this podcast because this means we have crossed the moment where I remember things from my childhood. Um, so I don't know; that just felt very appropriate. Also, that opened on December seventh, and and all that jazz opened on December twentieth. You know, holiday family movie, all that jazz. Of course. Well, Oscar bait movie, all that jazz. Sure, sure, sure. Other films in theaters at this moment included Baby Snakes, starring Frank Zappa, Norma Ray, starting over with Jill Clayburgh, Burt Reynolds, and Candace Bergen. Bo Derek in 10, and that ad featured the tagline, Wow! Exclamation point. See a perfect 10 two ways. Soon in Playboy, and now, all caps, in 10. Okay. Huh. Uh, the Electric Horseman with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, The Rose, Bette Midler, The Jerk, which we have talked about on this podcast before, Steve Martin's Unwatchable, The Jerk, uh, Apocalypse Now, The Black Stallion, which I also remember, weirdly, I was not a horse kid, Manhattan, and Being There. So, you know, you could you could see a bunch of movies over your holiday break. In theater, Evita and Bent are both on Broadway at the moment. Uh, also, Betrayal, starring Blythe Danner, Raul Julia, and Roy Scheider. A great month for Roy Scheider. And Mummenschance is in rep with a Kurt Vile cabaret. <laughs> sure. Sure, why not? I'm pretty That's sure this a... must be when I saw Mummenschance, too, speaking of things I vaguely remember. So, you know, I mean, a lot they of would... words I didn't expect to go together. They would come back quite a few times during your early childhood. So. It's true. It's true. Just um, imagine if you showed up on the wrong night. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean, my very favorite... German. <laughs> On the Cashbox Pop Charts, uh, since we made such a big time jump from last week, and it is the last chart of the 70s, I, I skimmed the whole 100 this week. I will not read the whole 100. But at number one was the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. 
I think that was also the number one Billboard song because in my trivia brain, I have that that was both the last number one of the 70s and the first number one of the 80s. Oh, nice. Mm. That makes sense. I mean, they're 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 more or less in line. And uh, spoiler, ultimate70s.com, there is no ultimate80s.com. So I'm going to have to switch to Billboard uh, when we when we cross over. Uh, I mean, I guess I could look up Cashbox, but, you know, why if I have to go to a separate site? The whole point was I was lazy. Number two was Rock With You by Michael Jackson. Number three, Do It To Me One More Time. Sorry, Do That To Me One More Time by Captain and Tennille. Do ya do that to me one more time? Uh, I I don't know. Do ya? (laughs) Number four was Ladies Night by Cool and the Gang. Number 11, No More Tears, parentheses, Enough Is Enough by Barbara Streisand and Donna Summer. At number 50, Video Killed the Radio Star which, you know, got really popular in 1981 when it was the first song played on MTV. And I do not think of it as a 70s song, but here we are. Did it get really popular or is it just historically significant? I think it recharted. Okay. But I could be wrong. Here's my fun fact about Video Killed the Radio Star. Do you know who the keyboard player was for the Buggles? I do not. Hans Zimmer. (laughs) What? Whoa. (laughs) Yep. Okay. I learned that recently and have made it my mission to tell anyone and everyone. I'm impressed you could conjure the name of the band to begin with. Oh, come on, David. Everyone knows the Boggles. Is Well, only because of that trivia fact. The Boggles? Like the Buggles. B-U-G-G-L-E-S. Buggles. Okay. Like a buggy, but with goggles. I also know that because uh, I was uh, very briefly in a band in high school that played it at the high school talent show. Nice. We were called free lunch. I think yeah, you were mentioned free lunch before. Yeah. Yes. All right. Let me get through this. Uh, <laughs> at fifty-four, Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. At sixty-two, Message in a Bottle by the Police, which also feels very eighties to me. At sixty-three, Anne Marie's cover of Daydream Believer. At seventy-five, Heartbreaker by Pat Benatar. And at eighty-seven, the worst Christmas song in history: Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. How dare you? Oh, oh I dare. Oh, oh. I mean, it's one of the worst. Is it actually the worst? That's, yes. That's uh, it's it's down there. It's it's among the worst. The Christmas shoes. The Christmas shoes. I would I would rather hear the Christmas shoes than Wonder Christmas Time. I really would. I would put yeah. Last Christmas on that list too. But oh, I like Last Christmas. I also like the John Lennon one, which a lot of people hate. So you know, I can't be trusted. Uh, notable to us. Rainbow Connection by Kermit is how it's credited, dropped out of the top 100 this week. Sad news. Okay, I'm almost done, I promise. On television, once again, making it all about me, there is a MASH rerun at 7 o'clock on Channel 5, and this is how I remember this. Like, I remember watching MASH followed by The Muppet Show. I am wondering if next season Star Trek is going to start being on at 6, or if that's if I'm just conflating two different nights of television into one because that's how memory works. Channel 5 uh, had a BBC telecast of Deflator Mouse hosted by Tony Randall, you know, for New Year's Eve. Um, (laughs) (laughs) CBS following up a show had WKRP in Cincinnati, The Last Resort, MASH, House Calls, and Lou Grant. We have not had a couple of those shows before, but this is going on forever, so I'll look those up another time. ABC had a Laverne and Shirley rerun and a movie called The Master Gunfighter. A man involved in the slaughter of Indians tries to redeem himself. I'm good. NBC had the King Orange Jamboree Parade, something actually for the holiday, and a movie called The Golden Heist with Savalas. You just said that as though that's a thing that everyone has heard of. What the fuck is the King Orange Jamboree Parade? I don't know, but it's a parade and it's New Year's Eve. And they're kings, so like it's probably relevant. I assume it's some California bullshit, but like 
Uh, no, it's, it's Florida bullshit. Florida bullshit? Yeah, okay. <laughs> One of the two. It was a New Year's Eve staple for 65 years that ended in 2002. Yeah, I just used context clues and didn't do any extra Googling, but a, thank you for the details. University of Miami football thing. Got it. A movie with Telly Savalas, Robert Culp, and James Mason called The Golden Heist. Um, Channel 9 was showing Citizen Kane. Like, I, There's like a real thing of like, oh, you're staying in for the holiday. <laughs> you're not going to a party. Here's Citizen Kane or it's- Deflator Mouse. PBS was showing Kiss Me Kate, which is totally reasonable, but here's how the New York Times described it. The Broadway score is still great. Best here are the dance sequences led by Annie Pie, who is yummy. I wish y'all could see Christy's face right now. That is Ann Miller, for those who don't know, but it doesn't matter. Ew. Gross. (laughs) Don't do that. Uh, And New Year's Rockin' Eve is on uh, because it is eternal, but it is not eternal. It premiered in 1972, so this is only its seventh. Counter-programming to Tony Randall's New Year's Mouse and Fleet. <laughs> I feel like Deflator Mouse has some kind of a New Year's Eve connection. Does is it is there just like a big party scene? Is that why I associate? I don't that know. Way? But like let's be clear, it was on Channel 5 and not PBS, <laughs> which I also find just wild. Yeah, so Deflator Mouse has a New Year's connection to it. Uh, The French custom of a New Year's Eve Réveillon, or supper party, was part of the original play that it's based on, uh, but there's a ball in the musical that replaces that New Year's Eve party, but I think because of that, it tends to get programmed on New Year's Eve a lot. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do, so it really makes me happy to introduce to you... Crystal Gale, singer, songwriter, sister. Damn. Faithful Muppeturgy listeners know that Crystal Gale is the younger sister of Loretta Lynn. Born in 1951 as Brenda Gale Webb, Brenda was the youngest of eight, the only one to be born in a hospital. The rest were all born at home. From the age of four, she grew up in Indiana, and at the age of eight, she lost her father. And I say this because all this means that her upbringing was significantly different from her older sister Loretta's. Uh, so although technically a coal miner's daughter, Brenda was actually the daughter of a retired and then deceased coal miner uh, growing up not in coal country. Loretta, in fact, was already married and out of the house when Brenda was born, although you'll remember that Loretta was a child bride, so they're not so far apart in age. When Brenda developed an interest in music in her teenage years, Loretta did encourage her along the way. Brenda got a big break at age 16, stepping in for her ill sister at the Grand Ole Opry. And when she graduated high school in 1970, she signed to Decca, the same record label that Loretta recorded with. And Loretta's husband was Brenda's manager in these early years. Decca asked her to come up with a stage name to distinguish her from Brenda Lee. Uh, The story goes that she was driving with Loretta and they passed the fast food restaurant Crystal. And Loretta suggested his name because Brenda, like Crystal's, was bright and shiny. And Gail, of course, came from her middle name. Despite the new name and the new record contract, Crystal had a little trouble finding her niche. Although she had some minor chart success with songs like I've Cried the Blue Right Out of My Eyes, she was being groomed to be a miniature Loretta, and that wasn't really the right move. Meanwhile, in 1971, she got married to her high school sweetheart, Bill Gatsimos. While she was starting her career, he was in law school, and after graduating, he became her manager and the president of their company. They are still together today, uh, with two kids and a couple of grandkids as well. In 1974, she left DECA for United Artists, and she teamed with producer Alan Reynolds, who shaped a more contemporary crossover sound for her. 
The style she perfected has been called middle of the road, which sounds like an insult today, but at the time was actually a badge of honor because it meant that she was able to cater to both country and pop fans. She gained steam with a series of well-received singles and albums, including two number one singles on the country charts, but her real breakthrough came in 1977 with the song Don't You Make My Brown Eyes Blue. If you're my age or older, even if you don't know the name Crystal Gale, you probably recognize this song because it was omnipresent on the radio in the 70s and 80s. I'll be fine when you're gone I'll just cry all night long Say it is all true And don't it make my brown eyes And in fact, when iTunes first came out, this was one of the first singles I bought because I was having this moment of like, what are the kind of songs that I just sort of used to hear in the world that I'm never going to hear again because radio doesn't work that way anymore that I miss? And this was one that I thought of and I spent my 99 cents uh, and it's the only Crystal Gale song I own. I don't believe I've ever heard that song, but also I like it a lot more than I thought I was going to like it. That was <laughs> much bluesier than I expected. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, she... In addition to her country pop thing, she also has like one foot in the American songbook and does covers even on her earliest albums. She's got like a great country version of It's All Right With Me. Uh, later on, she does a whole album of Hoagie Carmichael songs. So huh. she she really does like hit like right in the middle of a lot of different styles to create something new and special. Cool. Anyway, that song was originally intended for Shirley Bassey. Uh, but Alan Reynolds heard it and snagged it for Gale, uh, for whom it became an international hit. Number one on the country chart, number two in the Hot 100, number five in the UK, and on the charts in several other countries as well. That became the first track for her fourth album, We Must Believe in Magic, which peaked at number two on the country albums chart and number 12 on the Billboard 200. It was also the first album by a female country singer to be certified platinum. In 1978, Crystal Gale won the Grammy Award for Best Female Country Vocal Performance for Don't Abate My Brown Eyes Blue, uh, and its songwriter, Richard Lee, won for Best Country Song. By the end of 78, she had won Female Vocalist of the Year from both the Academy of Country Music and the Country Music Association. At the moment she taped her episode of The Muppet Show, she was at a bit of a career transition. She had left United Artists for Columbia, but her first Columbia album wouldn't drop until later in the year. Uh, in addition to The Muppet Show, she hosted two specials for CBS and appeared on a Bob Hope special, too, in which she became the first artist to film a performance on the Great Wall of China. I'm not going to go into depth on her post-Muppet Show career, uh, but I must mention her 1982 appearance on Sesame Street uh, and her duet with Big Bird on the Sesame Country album. She has continued to record right up to the present. Her most recent album came out in 2019, and she's released a couple singles since then. Uh, that album is called You Don't Know Me, and it's her first album to chart since the 1980s, reaching number 40 on Billboard's Independent Albums chart. Uh, so I have shared my one and only Crystal Gale memory. I'm wondering if anyone else has any. Christy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew who she was, but, you know, mostly because of her adjacence to Loretta. I mean, <laughs> I laughed when I, I learned the the thing about the, the crystal burgers um, because I, I, a few years ago uh, made a special trip to <laughs> a, a crystal location in Montgomery, Alabama. That's at the corner of, I think it's F Scott road and Zelda drive. <laughs> nice. Oh. <laughs> um, I took a picture. It'll be in the show notes, but yeah, I mean, I, I, in, in my head, I, 
you know, I was like, oh, Crystal Gale, Loretta Lynn's sister, long, long, shiny hair. Shiny. Oh, so, so long and so shiny. Curtain of hair. For for much of her career, her hair was literally floor length. How do you do it? I I mean, ugh. It's amazing and terrifying. Why don't you get me Muppet Show. We call it that because, uh, uh, well, we call it that because the whole show is just filled with Muppets, uh, plus one human being. Well, now that we finally know that, Christy, what did you think of the episode? You know, it's perfectly fine. It feels to me like a neat encapsulation of how far the show has come since season one, because like, it's not particularly remarkable, but I think it's so solidly constructed that I still had a nice time. I mean, I kept getting distracted by the aforementioned shiny hair of Crystal Gale, like just the physics of it. I just, I don't understand. It's so shiny. But yeah, no, I mean, it's not particularly memorable, but you know, it has its moments. Michal? Yeah, same. A solid episode. Solid B. There's nothing that is that remarkable about this episode, except that prairie dogs are adorable and Crystal Gale is lovely. Good job, everybody. David? This episode is full of Muppet nudity. I don't know how you can say it's not not memorable or remarkable. Uh, That, I mean, I didn't remember any of the stuff that had Crystal Gale in it, but the minute the prairie dogs popped up, I was like, oh, they're going to steal Kermit's collar and he's going to be naked. And that clearly made a huge impression on me because I was fascinated with the concept of nudity when I was very little. But otherwise, I, I I agree with you. Like it's, I think it's a fine episode. Uh, it, you know, I enjoyed it. It's not one that I feel a great need to revisit. Although I I think I do like the backstage plot a little more than perhaps either of you did. Yeah, I I found it delightful. I mean, I, it it's not a top tier by any means. But it, it's interesting you mentioned season one, Christy, because it's definitely had season one vibes for me, but but better. <laughs> like I think I think they've learned. That if you have a less engaged guest, you're not even necessarily a, not a great actor, but like she's not actually in that much. That the secret is just to make the material better and make it weirder, and like it's disjointed. But I don't care. Like it's a pro, not a con. There's weird singing fish. There's prairie dogs. Um, I'm into it, and I thought Crystal Gale is is lovely. And there's a lot of very specific ways where they take what might be a season one concept, but but level it up for season four. So like yeah, like who's in the songs with her and like how they're even how they're dressed is like done with more thought and care and like what's going on behind the main action and a lot of the things, even just like additional camera angles uh, in different numbers. Like those are sort of the things that like, I didn't quite know that I missed them until I saw them. Yeah. There's sort of a version of the talk spot, but now it's plot driven instead of just yeah random. Right. Like it's, yeah, it's nice. Crystal Gale. 15 seconds to curtain, Crystal. So the first thing you'll note about this episode, if you're watching on Disney Plus, is the full-on, unskippable 12-second disclaimer, baby. In commemoration of that, here are 12 seconds of radio silence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just probably... And unlike last time, we're not entirely sure why. We have a couple different theories. No, Um, we know why. We know why, but it... I mean, who am I? Uh, it, it did not. Our best guess as to why did not feel. We'll get to it when we get to it. But like, did not feel as blatant to me. Like you sort of have to know, very context. What's happening yeah. in that song and with those references, as opposed to Spike Mulligan, where it was really obvious 
why it was there. But we'll get into it when we get to the music. We will. So in our cold open, Crystal Gale is in her dressing room and she's preparing for the show with a little incomprehensible help from Scooter. Thanks, Scooter. Would you do me a favor and cue me on my lines? Well, sure. Uh, Crystal Gale, 15 seconds to curtain, Crystal. Thanks, Scooter. Would you do me a favor and cue me on my lines? Perfect. If it helps any, I didn't understand that either. Did she get kicked in the head by a pony? What is hard to understand about this joke? I think it's cute. I really wanted it to go a few more times just to go for maximum bizarreness. Yeah. Like to have her then say, can you help me on mm-hmm. with my lines? Yeah. But we didn't get that. We just got her little take to the camera, which was also cute. <laughs> also, Stetlin Waldorf's box is filled with penguins. Why not? Why did you invite these penguins? Because the aardvarks have the flu. <laughs> I love this so much. It's not the first iteration of this joke we've heard on The Muppet Show, but man, every freaking time. I love it. Gonzo lifts up his trumpet and blows bubbles. It's so charming and delightful. All right, let's go backstage. The Muppet Show backstage. So this week, as we've discussed, there are prairie dogs. They're here. They're hanging around. Um, Scooter is rehearsing a prairie dog glee club, but he's having trouble keeping these prairie dogs in line. Hey, the prairie dog glee club really sounds good. Yeah, well, they've been working really hard. Yeah, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're still working pretty hard. Uh, Scooter, what are they doing? Guys, come on, cut it out. Oh, then take five. Eat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the prairie dogs, they're stealing everything. Does anybody feel a need to get pedantic about the definition of a prairie dog as opposed to a gopher or as opposed to a prairie dawn, if you see fit? No, we we did that a couple episodes ago when they sang Blue Skies. Great. They're not gophers. They're prairie dogs. If you don't remember the difference between a prairie dog and a gopher, you can go back and listen to our Roy Rogers and Dale Evans episode from last season. If you don't remember the difference between a prairie dog and a prairie dawn, please don't Google it because I'm afraid of what you'll find. I, I will note by way of changing the subject from that, uh, that this set is the uh, the canteen set, I'm pretty sure, only it's no longer a canteen. They have they have stripped it of all of that set dressing. Um, so it's just but the, it's the same. Yeah, it's the same wall and the and staircase. And, and you can see the little cutout where Gladys used to be, but she's not there anymore. I fear she will never be heard from again. A Gladys-shaped oh, no. hole in the wall and in our hearts. <laughs> yeah, I know. Let's... Pour out a pina colada for Gladys. I also, I clipped this tiny thing because I have to be angry about it. Hey, boss. Okay, yes. yeah. The Prairie Dog Glee Club's ready. Oh, good. I'll schedule their number in the second half of the show. Good. What the, the, the show's <laughs> <Yeah>. happening? <laughs> what the? What? No. <laughs> I think we've clearly established by this point that the Muppet Show is an open mic night. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very elaborate open mic night but is it also uh-huh. a tv show because it seems to also be a tv show which has a very strict schedule yeah and kermit will schedule i don't know i don't know how to answer this for you <sighs> <laughs> anyway yeah like there's a set there are props yeah and they're building the set during the show this has oh, never fair point gone well um as far as your sanity goes i'm sorry Okay, anyway. Anyway, the prairie dogs, they're stealing stuff. It all escalates very quickly. The prairie dogs are stealing everything in sight. 
Kermit attempts to reprimand them and explain to them that stealing is wrong, and they respond by stealing his collar, which leaves him naked and very shaken and unruffled for the rest of the episode. I really hate that his collar is clothing and not a part of him. Well, I but mean, that makes early Kermit that didn't have the collar less scandalous. Or more scandalous. Well, definitely scandalous. Yeah. Also, like, I mean, this is a terrible road to go down. Like, if Muppets are concerned with nudity, but only the collar is the issue. That's why Fozzie wears a tie. Right. Like, is their junk just always hanging out? Like, is this... No, it's that this- they, they fuck through the next scene. <laughs> I was I trying to think of a bad more poetic to way to say that. I knew it was Come a bad road it. to go down. <laughs> Hang on to your puppet holes. We're going to talk about this. Uh-huh. I apologize to our listeners for <laughs> opening that door for David to walk right through. <laughs> I should know better. Let's move on, please. <laughs> anyway, Carpet's naked. Crystal Gale tries to help him out with a feather boa. It does not help. Do you often wear a bag over your head? Well, those dumb prairie dogs, they, they took away my collar. So? Well, you wouldn't want me to go around naked, would you? Well, no, it's family show. <laughs> it used to be. Why, if he has the bag, and he has scissors because he cut eyes in it, why doesn't he just cut it into, like, a nice necklace shape? I, th- I think he's ashamed of his nudity, so he's now he's hiding his face because of the way he's naked. But That's what would... the paper bag just reads as to me. Right, but if he had the paper bag around no, I know. I neck seam, then he wouldn't be naked. I understand. The more times you say neck seam, the more horrible it sounds. <laughs> it's worse than puppet hole somehow. <laughs> would you prefer a tracheotomy hole? <laughs> oh. Well, no, because it's not a hole. It's all the way Keep around. It. <laughs> nope, nope. Not Googling it. Please, nobody Google this. No, the puppet hole's at the other end. Listen, I Googled the Prairie Dawn thing and it was a nothing burger. Thank you. Thank you for your service. So Kermit is now sporting this very jaunty pink boa. Uh, He shows up in Piggy's dressing room. He's still extremely self-conscious, either about the nudity or about the boa. Unclear. Piggy has no fucks. I want to show you something. Now get in here. Uh, see, I can explain about this outfit. Oh, who you see, cares I- about your silly costume? Look at this. See, see my black wig that I wear for Latin numbers? It's missing. Oh. And my long lavender gloves. Uh, yeah, but- and my simulated pearls. Her simulated pearls are missing. It's such a great detail that she says simulated pearls. Yeah. Um, and also that, A, that he calls simply a boa an outfit. And B, that she doesn't care that he's in drag. I love everything about that. Yeah, she's got bigger fish to fry. Have we ever seen Piggy on The Muppet Show wear a black wig for a Latin number? Because in Quanta Lagusta, she had her hair up in... Uh, right, she does like the a, Carmen Miranda thing. Or, yeah, like a... I don't know what you call that. I don't, yeah, think, I don't we think we have. have. I think we might later in the season, but I don't think we have yet. But that's definitely my strongest theory for the 12-second the disclaimer. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I think that would just give it a little one. Huh. I don't even think the idea that having dark hair for a Latin number counts as is controversial or racist. Oh, not great. I mean, not to do yeah. the wig, but to comment on it like that feels a little bit weird. But, I guess, but I don't. Doesn't feel twelve second disclaimer worthy to me. But you know, it could also be a combination, right? We've talked before how like there's probably some yeah. kind of point system. Right. Yeah. Um. So this is a um, a, stri- a strike when they already had nine strikes. It's the nudity. It's the it's, that's it. It's actually the nudity as well. <laughs> I mean, actually, 
Weirdly, it might be because like it is it is adultish, but it, but it's not the the warning is not about adult content. The warning is about insensitive right, content. Right, right. It's true. It's very it's very specific. It's insensitive to nudists. When Kermit tries to leave, Piggy steps on his boa, which yanks him backwards, and he falls. And you may wonder how Muppets don't have feet, and this set has no floor. But it's this amazing combination of puppetry and foley work. Like there's a sound effect of the stomp, and then you know I, somebody is yanking on the boa, and you know Jim pulls Kermit back. Like it's just, and that you see the stomp, even though there is no stomp to be to be seen. Like the the two of them together, and then like the TV magic is my favorite thing in this episode. It's it's just yeah. Maybe such it's a because the first time that I watched, I was watching on my phone, and I didn't quite catch what was going on. But I assumed that Piggy just stomped on the ground. And the magnitude of her wrath was what made Kermit fall to the floor. <laughs> Either way, it works great. <laughs> yeah, no, but you you can see yeah, the boa yeah, yeah. go Todd and he gets like pulled back from the neck. It's a, there obviously will be a gif on the on the website. It's beautifully done, and we should note that we are in Miss Piggy's dressing room. And have we we've been in Miss Piggy's dressing room before, right? But yes, but she got an upgrade. It seems so, yeah. I, I went back and actually tried to look because uh, David asked this question on Slack, and I feel like we've been here before. I don't um, think so. I don't think we've seen this version of her dressing room. Uh, so certainly in, in past seasons, they had the one dressing room set that they just changed the furniture around or changed up what yeah. was on the walls. But, but and, she had a very distinct, like a distinctly separate look from everybody else, but it was still obviously that set. Right. And this is like a, a different set that is just for Miss Piggy that is she gets the glammed star out. Uh, as befits her new superstar diva yeah. situation in the world. Good for her. She does, however, have a wig block on the table to indicate that the black wig has is not on it. Might be more accurately called a pig block. Yeah. It's real weird. It has a snout and ears. And, you know, normal human wig blocks don't have faces or well, they just don't have features. They're just a they're just a blank head. I just found it so strange and so unnecessary because it actually took me a minute to figure out what like why there was a weird pig head on the table. It's just a very strange choice, especially in a set that looks so good. It's a really ugly prop, and it's right, right downstage. It did seem like it was pretty hastily done. Like, maybe they had to make it at the last minute, and somebody thought it would be funny, and there wasn't enough time to give it the okay or not. I don't know. It was a little bizarre, but I understood what it was. I think if the wig had been on it, it might have looked better, so I wonder if we'll see that later. But Maybe. It's very strange. <laughs> Anyway, Kermit tries to explain that the prairie dogs are stealing everything, and that's where all Miss Piggy's stuff has gone. And then they all just pop up and titter, holding all of Miss Piggy's stuff. Um, Kermit tries to demand that they return it, and instead they just throw it all over the dressing room and toss her wig back at her and blind Miss Piggy with the wig, which is another bit of remarkable puppetry when she's trying to throw this wig off of herself. So I guess these prairie dogs are more about semi-organized chaos than about organized crime or organized thievery. They also started off this whole Glee Club thing by singing Somebody Stole My Gal. And I wondered if this whole episode is just they're annoyed that somebody stole their gal, so they're just going to steal everything else. After this scene, we flash to Statler and Waldorf, who also get their suits stolen by the Prairie Dogs. And they're wearing sort of full body underwear, which makes me wonder if Statler and Waldorf may be secret Mormons. 
I think they're just old timey long john wearers. Yeah, that's how I read it too. But I see your point. Anyway, the prairie dogs continue to steal everybody's clothes. By the time we reach the outro, all the Muppets are naked. They steal everybody's remaining outfits, including Crystal Gales. She's also there in her underwear at the end. This is fine. This is a family show. I don't know what's going on anymore. I mean, she's there in like a slip. It's it, She's not there in like a bra. But still. Oh, I did not clock her as naked at all. I mean, they steal her she's dress. She's not naked, but her, she definitely loses her dress, and then she has something on underneath it. I was so distracted by naked scooter, I did not even notice this. <laughs> David's been waiting for this moment for three seasons. Uh, notably. Uh, and yet you don't like It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas. I like that scene in A Very Merry Muppet Christmas. <laughs> it, it's interesting that have a type. here oh we only God. see <laughs> naked scooter from behind. And I have a theory. And like, we see naked scooter from behind. Stalin World Orpha wearing full body underwear. Gonzo's wearing an undershirt. I think that Don't say mu- next name again. What's that? No, Don't I think there's a, I think there's a fear of Muppet nipples. Well, that was the next don't say. Don't say Muppet nipples, but here we are. <laughs> Gonzo's underwear also he's wearing boxers and like an undershirt, but the boxers are like like really big, like like he's really hippie in them in a way that I don't think he looks in his regular outfit. So that just struck me as bizarre. I don't know what's going on there. Well, I was too distracted right now. by Crystal Gale's nudity than t- t- to pay attention to the particular brands of Muppet nudity. So here we are. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we did also see one of the prairie dogs wearing Kermit's collar at the end, which I thought was like a nice little callback. <laughs> it is cute that they keep getting more clothed over the course of the episode like they are they are taking a liking to this whole clothing thing they get little bowler hats and collars it's really cute prairie dogs are cute with hats and also cute when they're naked they're cute all the time all right so let's dig into the second and more obvious theory we have for the 12 second disclaimer should we issue a disclaimer of our own you know just because so i just uh, sort of a, a mild content warning for ways in which we don't talk about the american south anymore hopefully um if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds and skip the clip go for it Funny. How I love you, my dear old Swanee. I give the world to be among the folks in the D-I-X. I even know my mammy's waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. That tempo is like death. I don't like that song anyway, but that <laughs> tempo makes me want to kill all these Muppets. Well, we, we need to contextualize that the joke no, here know. is that they're doing this, like, American Dixieland nostalgia number, right, as a German beer hall song. Yes. I got the joke. It's still very I, slow. I know you got the joke. I'm telling this to our listeners who may not have watched the episode yet. And may not realize that there are pigs in Lederhosen, along with all the singing penguins. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I don't want to get too derailed, but this is so context dependent to be right. offensive, right? Yeah, and and I mean, I think audiences at the time, adult audiences at the time, probably would have recognized 
the Al Jolson reference. Like there, at one point, a dog does Al Jolson, right. but not in blackface like Al Jolson would. Have. Uh, <laughs> like, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you though. Like when we watched this in my home, the minute the song started, and they said the word Swanee, Keith goes, "Oh shit." Because, like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to know about Al Jolson to know that a song called Swanee that is sort of romanticizing the antebellum South has racist overtones. Right. And it it was often performed in blackface by humans. But I I just guess it has racist overtones, but it is. There are two versions of the disclaimer the small one and the big one. And this feels like a small disclaimer event to me because they're not performing it with any kind of context. Yeah, and the, but they're talking about like the their mammies waiting for them, praying for them. Like yes, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's not great. I'm not I'm not I mean I never I know you're not defending again, it, but like but yeah. I'm just I'm I'm just questioning why some things get that disclaimer and others don't, because I think there have been moments in the past that have had the small one that feel much more blatant to me. Not that any of it is okay, right? I, I wonder too that like if someone who does not know this song at all is hearing it for the first time is more likely to hear the like, oh, this is romanticizing the South and slavery and whatever. Whereas like, I've heard the song roughly a hundred million times in my life. And so like, on the one hand, I know all the context. And on the other hand, is like so totally devoid of context. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this is also where I admit my own blindness because I grew up in the South. And so like, there are certain things that are still used that are like, semi-normalized you know like it's my my mom lives in a neighborhood where the main drag is called dixie highway Mm -hmm. so you know it's just that thing of like i mean like the mammy reference for sure is a like yeah i mean that's a direct shout out to a well-known blackface number yeah that's there's no tiptoeing around that yeah i'm definitely not arguing against there being like there should be a disclaimer and also i think it's important to say that in the 70s this would not read as controversial or offensive in any way right i mean even listen in the 90s mandy patinkin was doing these numbers in concert like and people didn't really blink at it other than being like mandy you're not al jolson (laughs) but not like (laughs) mandy you're not black or mandy you're not racist or like don't do don't be racist or whatever like it was just you know yeah totally yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the song. <laughs> Tell us about Swanee. Sure. Yeah, so the song is called Swanee, and we've talked about it a little bit in the uh, Steve Martin episode, um, because there was a, a joke on it with Mary Louise and Friend. And it's uh, actually, it's a Gershwin song, surprisingly. Well, a George Gershwin song. It was his first song, like first notable song. Yeah, I, I was wondering because of, of the date. I, the, it's from 1919, so shout out to the public domain. Uh, and the lyrics are not by Ira Gershwin, but rather by Irving Caesar, who uh, claimed to have written it in 10 minutes on a Manhattan bus, which is not the sort of thing that I would brag about. That's not um, an instrument that I've ever learned how to play. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and it is actually a, a parody of a Stephen Foster song, Uh old folks at home or Swanee River as people tend to refer to it. That song's actually mentioned by name in the the lyric. And it originally appeared in a review called Demitas, but uh, it became a hit the next year when Al Jolson put it in a show, an already running show, already written and running show. This kills me. Every time this comes up, I'm, mm-hmm. as a musical theater writer, I'm just like, cool, cool. Just 
Sure. Yeah, ad songs. Sure. Just like when they put I'm a believer into Shrek the musical after it had already opened. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, exactly yeah. the same. Totally. <laughs> that's, that's how it goes. Um, yeah, so Al Jolson uh, put it in his already running show called Sinbad. I say his and that he was starring in it. He didn't write it. Anyway, and that that's when it took off. This is where the the offensive context comes into play yeah. because blackface was Al Jolson's whole thing. I mean, we've talked about Al Jolson a little bit, um, but yeah, not great. Um, but yeah, uh, but, he- so but here I realized we- you were saying that we uh, in the Steve Martin episode, it it is Swanee River, not this Swanee. Uh, and I put that note in the outline, and I was wrong. So, in case that's not easily cuttable, here's my correction to that. So, on the positive, I mean, I this is nonsense, and I don't like this song normally, and I don't like it done this way. But the the set and the costumes and the props here are all delightful. Um, Strange Pork is part of the All Pig Band and gets a couple lines, and like just gets to actually be a German dude, which I appreciate. Like, there's penguins. There's a dog who is weirdly stapled to a barrel. Um, There's the Afghan hound. They're all just having a good Yeah, he he has legs so that he can kneel like Al Jolson, but they don't move. It's weird. But I don't know. There's a lot of of fun here, but, you know, I'll see above. (laughs) Yeah, it's a fun production number that is the racist number. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and in service of, like, why this? I, I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of why this... Well, what'd you think of that number? I can't talk about it. Why not? I still have relatives in Germany. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait. That was from this episode? I totally yeah. missed that line. I mean, we've seen him in, I'm pretty sure, a German military uniform before, so I guess that checks out. Hmm. <sighs> I don't want to think about that too hard. Um, let's move on to something really adorable. Yay. Somebody stole my gal. Somebody stole my pal. Mm. Somebody came and took her away. Find her, Scooter. It's Somebody Stole My Gal, which we've talked about before. Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers did it in the John Cleese episode, which was not nearly as endearing as a bunch of prairie dogs doing it. But yeah, for a quick refresher, it was written by a guy named Leo Wood in 1918. Shout out yet again to the public domain. And uh, this is Leo Wood's claim to fame. That's all I got. Good job, Leo Wood. And just to make us feel old, because I enjoy that, the amount of time from Leo Wood to this episode uh, is the same as the amount of time from right now to 1963. (laughs) Oof. Dawn of rock and roll. (laughs) (sighs) All right, we we need a quick palate cleanser. Um, let's run away. <laughs> Once again, with my suitcase in my hand, I'm running away down the river road, and I swear. Once again, that I'm never coming home. I'm chasing my dreams down river road. So this uh, cute little bop is called River Road. And it is, uh, in fact, one of Crystal Gale's songs. It's from her 1977 album, We Must Believe in Magic, which we will discuss here in a bit. 
and this song, I was delighted to learn, was written by Canadian folk singer Sylvia Tyson, nay, Sylvia Fricker, who uh, is best known as one half of the folk duo Ian and Sylvia. And another thing that I learned about her, which is awesome, is she wrote the song You Were On My Mind, which is a banger par excellence. It's a great song. And uh, yeah, she's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, and the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. So good for her. I'm learning um, so much today. How does uh, You Were On My Mind go? When I woke up this morning. Oh, okay. You were on my mind. That is a banger. Yep. The, it's the, the We Five version is uh, the, the hit version of that. Yeah. So I got a question. What the flying fuck is this accent that Crystal Gale is using? I had that same question, and I made a second clip because... Habawa? Well, I'm married, pretty good man, and he tries to understand, but he knows I've got leaving on my mind these days. That's a girl from Indiana who was forced to take voice lessons. I guess also that doesn't scan at all. Like, it, I looked it up. Plus, it's a problem. What do you want? It's actually I married a pretty good man, but she's she's dropped. The uh, and it still doesn't scan. I just, it's so, everything about that bridge is so baffling to me. And I quite enjoyed this number. But yes, those vowels are somebody who's thinking more about their placement than about the accent they're singing in, I think. I mean, I thought about it a little bit today. And, you know, the only alternate explanation I can come up with is that if she were to really use her, her own accent on this, she would sound too much like her sister. Mm. Well, I also wonder if she were to listen to Sylvia Tyson sing it, is that like, is, is that what her accent sounds like? And it's like, there's a thing that sometimes when singers learn a song by just listening to the composer demo, they end up adopting all of the composers like weird ticks. This is particularly true of Broadway singers who sing Jason Robert Brown numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought maybe that's what's going on here. There's a particular like 70s folksy sound to it too that's like a thing, but it yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So this is one of those bits where um there's a lot of walking in place and the backdrop is uh is rolling behind them and uh it's delightful, but you can definitely see the seam on the drop. Every time it goes by, which I'm sure was not true in a pre-HD. Again with the seams. Again with the seams. <laughs> Damn it. Is this the same background from the walking the dog and jogging? Probably. Sketches? Yeah. Probably. There was, there was a jogger there. There is a jogger there who is wearing headphones, uh, which struck me as odd in 1979. And so I looked it up and the Walkman was introduced in 1979. There were, of course, other like portable radios and things. He was carrying uh, a record player with him. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, he, been, he was cranking as he, you know, listening yeah. to the ball game. He could have listened to the game on the radio, like whatever, but like he's Upper wearing these big headphones, which are not a thing that I like associate with portability at that time. And also the Walkman would have been very, very new. So I just found that a delightful detail. There's also one really sweet moment to go along with this walking backdrop thing. There's a moment where Crystal Gale looks down, and I don't know if it's because there's a puppeteer shuffling underneath her, or if she's afraid that she's going to fall off whatever walkway she's on. But she like has this tiny little micro grimace <laughs> where she's like not sure what's going on underneath her for a second, and then she just smiles back at the camera and keeps singing. 
it happened so quickly that I, I couldn't even catch which second it happened in. Nice. I did like that each of the whatnots that joins her in this is really specifically costumed in a way that I think is sort of a, maybe not entirely new for season four, but definitely like this was season one. It would have just been like fucking George and droop and Mm -hmm. green frackle. And it's nice to see that like the, these aren't even just sort of random anonymous people. These are, are characters who have been thought out and costumed accordingly. Yeah, they're all running away for their own particular reason. Yeah. <laughs> like the Frank Oz character who last night for dinner ate a fence post. Meanwhile, this is a song that Crystal Gale included in her repertoire uh, for many, many years. She sang it in concert and it's on, you know, she recorded it. Uh, this is the only performance that has that final verse about returning home after having run away. Hmm. It is cute that after walking for three quarters of the song, she suddenly turns around and walks the other way. <laughs> It's a nice visual. It's a good message for the kids. <laughs> and we sort of shaded her earlier. She acts it really well. Yeah. Like her response to the Frank character and then the like, well, <laughs> turning around. Like it's just, it's it's pretty good face acting for from a non-actor. Yeah. Nice song. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the time I ran away from home. When was that? Last night. The wife was driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And if you think that sounds fishy. Where is the lone shark from Cincinnati? Who comes daily to his fishery? Fish is what he eats. Listen to this story. Hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight. Food back a second. Want some seafood, mama? Shrimps and rice, they're very nice. Hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight. Want some seafood, mama? Codfish and sauce, and then of course. So this is our UK spot for this episode. Uh, and a song called "Hold Tight, Hold Sight." Want some seafood, mama? And it's a Sidney Bechet song from 1938. Sidney Bechet was one of the all-time great jazz reed players. He played both sax and clarinet. And uh, the history of this song is wild. <laughs> so over time, it has been variously credited to. Uh, according to secondhandsongs.com, Sidney Bechet, Edward Robinson, Jerry Brando, Leonard Kent, Leonard Ware, and Willie Spotswood. It took six people to write that song? Yeah, actually, it didn't. So Sidney Bechet recorded it first, and it was credited to him, Leonard Ware, who was his guitarist, and the two fishmongers, who were his, his uh, singers, Eddie Robinson and Willie Spotswood. And their version had dirtier lyrics, and around the same time, Jerry Brando and Lenny Kent, who were two white guys who were dancers, uh, heard the song, took it to the Andrews sisters, and claimed that it was traditional. And they cleaned up the lyrics, and the Andrews sisters recorded it and had a hit with it. Um, and then uh, a few months later, Fats Waller recorded the dirty version, and all these various versions led to this wild copyright dispute where like, several other jazz musicians claimed credit for parts of it, including Count Basie. And uh, eventually, Brando and Kent, the white dancer dudes, were removed from the copyright. And the final credit determination, as registered in 1968, wow, uh, was that it was written by Leonard Ware, Sidney Bechet's guitarist, and the two fishmongers, Robinson and Spotswood. Yep. Now I need to find the dirty version. I don't think I've ever heard the dirty version. Yeah, I mean, I I I say dirty, it, like I I think it's more in the like entendre. Sure, realm. sure. 
And may- maybe this is all entendre that they're just playing as, like, just about fish, but I'm, like, not... Well, no, because it starts with, you know, he's a loan shark, so uh, it's clearly telling a story where the fish are not fish. Yeah. This song, I know the Andrew Sisters version primarily, but before I knew the Andrew Sisters version of this song, I knew the song Swing from the musical Wonderful Town by Leonard Bernstein and Compton Green, which is a parody of this song specifically and also other songs like it from sort of the beatnik era and like with all of this sort of jazzy slang. Uh, and I, I remember the day that I heard the Ender sisters sing this for the first time and it like unlocked the meaning of this other song that had been totally perplexing to me. Uh, that was a good day. <laughs> Happy for you. Anyway, is, I thought this, this song was cute. cute. It could have been yeah. cut in half. <laughs> it, Yeah. I kept looking at the time on it because this is under two minutes long, but boy, does it feel longer. Well, I think they do the same set of lyrics fully twice. Yeah. 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 It's also That's part of it. It's also kind of visually dull, like by necessity. It's a, the, the shark puppeteer by Jerry Nelson is, is floating, swimming in the air. So he's in black and it's a black, Jerry is in black, not the shark. And it's a um, black, backdrop but so it's really just it's a void and it's a long time to spend in a void with without a lot in it right the shark is the only puppet who's who's back there and then the other ones are popping up on the piano which is very cute it is very cute to have a little fish popping out of the piano and ralph is doing his best being an engaging piano player also there's a little lobster who comes in and helps ralph out and the shark eats the lobster twice somehow (laughs) just pops back up and that sh- that lobster is wailing on the piano. Yeah, there is a, a several times the the shark's tail moves, you know, in a way that a shark would actually swim, but mostly it's pretty stiff. And I was like, oh, that's nice that they're doing that. And then I realized I think it's actually hitting Jerry's head when he moves it around. But it like it works. It actually like creates that movement in a really nice way. And I, I sort of wish they'd done more of it, but I, I'm not sure it was deliberate. <laughs> it's a good number. Hmm. Disagree, but. it's a cute cute shark it's a a cute shark cute fish cute lobsters a little too long you know also i think that this number would have benefited from more than just a piano Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i don't know why it wasn't the mayhem number because he's doing floyd voice anyway i guess somebody built that shark puppet well (laughs) and to use it (laughs) if if for some reason you thought there were were two uk spots in this episode We wouldn't fault you because the next number definitely to me felt like a UK spot. 24 hours kept ticking away And they all voted to call it a day My darling in a day There wasn't time to say how much I love you Seven days they got together and they decided to become a wee They grew and grew, then 52 weeks decided to become a year. And now for a smaller scale number. Yeah, so we got a a group of singing fish eels. They're fish with very, very long necks. Yeah, singing a song called 60 Seconds Got Together, which was a hit for a singing group called the Mills Brothers in 1938. And uh, they were a big deal in their time. They got over three dozen gold records. Uh, They sold more than 50 million 
records. Like, it's amazing. They were also the first African-American artists to have their own show on National Network Radio, which is pretty cool. Neat. Really faithful listeners to Muppeturgy who have spent some time with our Spotify playlist of cover versions and original versions of the songs that the Muppets do might know the Mills Brothers because they're on that playlist a few times, including uh, their version of Old Folks at Home, tying it back. So this song was written by Mac David and Jerry Livingston. Mac David, I was pleased to learn, uh, Hal David's older brother, Hal David being Burt Bacharach's frequent lyricist collaborator. And Mac David was lyricist on a bunch of stuff, you know, including the songs from Disney Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. And he was nominated for the Best Song Oscar eight times. Whoa. He's not to be confused with the recently discussed on Muppeturgy, Mac Gordon, who was nominated nine times for the Best Song Oscar. Wow. I had this moment of like, that's not the same Mac, is it? No. What's weird is that Mac David also occasionally wrote with Burt Bacharach, which is very confusing Whoa. to me. Wow. That I think that was maybe confusing. like before Burt and Hal got together. Maybe they like had tested that out. And they're like, hey, maybe you should meet my brother. So for people playing our hypothetical drinking game, I wasn't sure if they were going to have to drink eight times, but then you said nine times. And I think they should have to drink the difference. So just once. Just the one. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jerry Livingston, who wrote the music, was, was uh, one of the other songwriters on Cinderella. There were three of them. The third was a guy named Al Hoffman. And he was also one of the three songwriters of the song Mersey Dotes. It took three people to write that song? There yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> he also co-wrote the theme song to Mr. Ed. <laughs> which has a, a, a similar sort of... the Mr. Ed song. <laughs> two people, yeah. So... I was surprised that I did not know this song at all. I had never heard this song before, and I still don't know if I like it or not. I don't think it's a very good Muppet Show number. It very much has UK spot vibes to it in that it it's very standalone and throwaway. I liked it so much better than the fish number, which I can't explain because it's well, it's also it's fish another number. fish number, <laughs> but it's uh, and less happens in this. They don't move and it's, around. Yeah, it's also in a void. But I find these puppets so cute, and it's a bright void, which really helps. They're in a bright blue background, not a black void. Um, I don't know. I I just found it very. These fish puppets are so weird, and something about them like doing this close harmony. I just found very cute and entertaining. Also, I think I like the song better. It is weird that we're about to get uh, a a a number set in a literal barbershop, and that's not the barbershop shop quartet. <laughs> yeah, it is odd that the Kermit game. introduces the next number and says, please enjoy the barbershop harmonies of these prairie dogs who then sing in unison. <laughs> 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 but he makes yeah, it there. Yeah, it's strange. It's a strange use of the set versus the void, and I understand why the prairie dogs have to have a set, but it... it why a barbershop? And then why is there a barbershop quartet number right before it? It's very weird. Dramaturgically speaking. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> speaking of, let's hear the non-barbershop barbershop number. Number eight belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. The stars belong to everyone. They clean, therefore you and me. The flowers in spring, the robins in sing.
I had not the name of the song. Yes, not just not just my philosophy. I mean, though, sure, it is. I had not properly appreciated while I was watching the episode how cute the little sound effect is to indicate the prairie dogs are stealing shit, (laughs) but they have that little whistling sound effect. Yeah, it's like a foot. It's very nice, and it it reminds me of um, a little bit of I enjoy being a girl, where Mm -hmm. they they similarly you know set everything to the music. Yeah, and they keep putting on clothes. So this song has music by Ray Henderson and lyrics by Buddy Da Silva and Lou Brown. It was written for a musical called Good News in 1927, and especially Good News, public domain as of this year. Hmm. Shout out to the public domain. All right. Although Good News is one of those shows that's been rewritten several times, so that like the version that's in the public domain is probably pretty hard to get your hands on. Sure. Right. Yeah, there is a stage adaptation as well. Well, no, no, it was a stage musical first. It was oh, made, I see. Made, it's been made into a movie a couple times, but but then it's been revised at least twice since the original Broadway version. So this is one of those standards that had a weird revival a couple decades later in the late 40s. There was a hit recording by Joe Stafford that set off a firestorm of covers, uh, including noted Joe Rapposo Stan Frank Sinatra recording it on the radio. Bingo. So I don't know that it's a weird revival because the the remake and more popular version of the movie that MGM did was 1947. So I imagine that probably, although it could, I may have cause and effect backwards. It might be that the song had a weird revival and they're like, let's remake good news. The movie's a lot of fun and uh, only a little bit racist. Well, what more can you ask for? Well, I'm, weird in just that like that's not a phenomenon now like you know songs popping up 20 years later like it's it's like i'm trying to think of a song from well, 2003 like when, oh like like barbie girl <laughs> this is about to have a major revival <laughs> sure but like, or like when when britney spears covered my prerogative like it ha- it happens it doesn't happen in the same way because covers don't happen uh, in the same way now, like it's if you might get yeah, one there aren't like f- right. cover, not, not like, like five. five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what. That's so what for imagine. My favorite point of reference for this song is uh, from late in the run of Mad Men when Robert Morse sang it in a dream sequence. <laughs> oh yeah, clearly I stopped watching Mad Men too early. This is also the title song of a 1956 biopic of Ray Henderson, Buddy De Silva, and Lou Brown called. Uh, well, called The Best Things in Life Are Free, uh, that starred Gordon McRae, Dan Daly, and Ernest Borgdine in Cherie North. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, and uh, I think this is the first time we see Bear on Patrol outside of a Bear on Patrol sketch. I believe that's true, yes. Because the the whole setup is that the the prairie dogs are stealing things from the barbershop while Fozzie is sitting there with his face covered in a towel, presumably because he just had a, a nice hot shave. Uh, and then they steal the towel and then they steal his uniform and then they steal Link's uniform. And then we have to be confronted once again with Link's chest hair popping up <laughs> from his undershirt. <laughs> a single tuft. Yeah. It's a bit of a reveal that Fozzie is bare on patrol. Like you, right. you can see through the course of the song that Fozzie is there and his face is covered in a towel, but you can tell that it's Fozzie. <laughs> and then they reveal that, He's actually there to put them under arrest, except they steal his outfit, so it's irrelevant. Well, I think we must move on. <laughs> we must. We must. Must we? Man is the 
Giving Sarah Brightman. Blacklight poster in the basement. Wafts of incense. This is what mid-journey AI would produce if you vaguely described Kate Bush to it. <laughs> the visuals or the audio or both? All of it. The whole All package. Yeah, they, uh-huh. they really got the most 70s thing that ever 70s in Under the Wire on New Year's Eve. <laughs> incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, so this song's called We Must Believe in Magic. And uh, it it is, in fact, a Crystal Gale joint. It's from her uh, album of the same name, uh, aforementioned album of the same name from 1977. And it was written by uh, Alan Reynolds, uh, her producer manager that uh, was mentioned earlier by David in the bio, and Bob McDill. And I learned that Alan Reynolds wrote uh, Five O'Clock World by the Vogues, yet another 60s banger to end yep. all bangers. It is. And Bob McDill is a real uh, journeyman uh, country songwriter. He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame just this year, a couple months ago. So good on you, Bob McDill. Yeah. Didn't know he was such a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So what's happening here? (laughs) I mean, I don't know, but I will try to describe it. She's, She's singing about a spaceship, but she is on a sailing ship, possibly the wreck of a sailing ship and she is a ghost based on the look of it and her flowy white costumes and the fan blowing in her face. Right. Or she's the last surviving crew member of this wreck and she's being haunted by. Yep. Also that because she's singing about these other figures who are on the ship bound for Alpha Centauri, but they're portrayed as ghosts? Question mark. (laughs) Like they're, they're chroma keyed and they're transparent behind her and they're really cool looking puppets. I wish we could see them better. But they're all sort of like floating behind her and screaming, which I don't understand because it sounds like a like a good journey. I mean, the the song is sort of like, you know, haunting and weird, but like it does sound like a happy thing that we believe in magic and we're on a ship bound to Alpha Centauri. So I don't know why they're screaming, but they definitely are. <laughs> it's weird. They look like the ghosts that follow you home on the haunted mansion, like crossed with the turn the world around masks. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's real weird they remind me a little bit of the ghost of christmas present in muppet's christmas carol and a little bit of dark crystal like Mm -hmm. they're not not muppety but they're not they would feel weird hanging out with kermit yeah i i didn't try too hard to parse these lyrics because it seemed like a fool's errand but um alpha centauri is the the closest star system to ours and and they seem pretty certain that there is an earth-like planet there so if we were going to get on a ship and colonize something um it would be there and so it it features in a lot of science fiction um and uh including transformers cybertron is in alpha centauri so you know watch out crystal (laughs) they do seem like they're in agony (laughs) 
right? <laughs> I mean, in, in a ghostly way. The vibe here is so confusing to me. <laughs> like, we must believe in magic because if we don't, we'll end up in this sort of hellish purgatory that these spirits are in. Mad is the crew bound for Alpha Centauri, dreamers and poets and clowns. So I guess it's very literal that these creatures are dreamers and poets and clowns. But Bold is the ship bound for Alpha Centauri and nothing can turn it around. Like, I don't, I can't tell if that's bad or good. Like, the butt makes it sound bad. <laughs> but that is where they're going. I don't know. It's so strange. Yeah. Now that I've been thinking about it too hard. But yes, it does feel like do she's here. being haunted by her shipmates who did not make it. Yeah. If you believe in magic, you'll have the universe at your command. That that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's got these ghosts at her command and they're going to get her to Alpha Centauri. Yeah. Is this a song about drugs or just a song that makes more sense if you take drugs? Yes. <laughs> it is, I mean, now I'm obsessed with these lyrics. Matt is the captain of Alpha Centauri. We must be out of our minds. Though we are shipmates and bound for tomorrow, everyone here is flying blind. So it sounds like Alpha Centauri here is the name of the ship and not... It's, well, it's both, right? Because okay. it's the captain of Alpha Centauri and they're bound for Alpha Centauri. And but they've already reached it because they're already on the ship called Alpha Centauri. Exactly. But it's very conflicted, right? We must be out of our minds and we're, you know, and we're, we're blind, but we're bound for tomorrow. Like, it's, it's a, it is, a, I think, a very deliberately, or just they were very high, contradictory song so i guess the vibe of the muppet show presentation sort of makes sense but it you know for kids it's a real it's a really weird it's like who's on first on lsd yeah exactly <laughs> i do like it though should be clear i like it whatever the message was and i can't quite tell you what the message was i enjoyed it and found it moving never mind that jazz listen turkey what and get out of show business so first off for show business this week, on Pigs in Space, the swine track is pillaged by Dirth Nader and his posse of chicken stormtroopers. Captain, is he? Yes, I'm afraid he's. I'm resting. That was a difficult scene to play. You must tell us who has breached our security. Who is outside of our door? Dirth Nader. <laughs> <laughs> These are some great stings. Dr. Strangepork rushes in and he's covered with some kind of mud or... I think it's soot. I think there's been like an explosion. Like fire in the engine room. Yeah, yeah, or he got shot at with lasers or, you know. Yeah. Sci- sci-fi stuff. Yeah, well, he held them off as long as he could. But yes, they learned that their security has been breached by a Dearth Nader and... Any lingering confusion about Darth Nader's identity is eliminated when he turns and shows us his profile. <laughs> who, who are you behind that mask? Huh, and well, you might ask. Ah, good grief. So, I mean, I was shocked to see Darth Nader this early because... There's a whole Star Wars episode coming up. And and I was like, did you not know that Mark Hamill was booked on the show? Did you just decide to blow the joke very early? I don't know. It's also like just in the timeline, right? This is this is 
airing over two years after Star Wars came out and and several months away from Empire Strikes Back. It is it is still deeply in the zeitgeist, and I love it, and I love Darth Nader. <laughs> from the wiki, I, I, I feel compelled to point out, because apparently it was very important to Jerry Jewell, that it is Dearth, D-E-A-R-T-H, meaning lack of, and Nader or Nadir, meaning the lowest point. And apparently it's it's often incorrectly spelled D-I-R-T-H, and in the late 90s, Jerry Jewell wrote to Danny Horn, hi Danny, of Muppet Zine, correcting him on the spelling. <laughs> because Jerry Jewell was very proud of that play on words. So there you go. I love that for everyone. Right. There are also chicken stormtroopers so who are cute. wearing little colanders on their faces, and it's beautiful. I just want to give a shout out to Piggy's perfect hair. Her hair is so good she in this great. pigs in space. And I, I sort of touched on this earlier, but this is one of the sketches in particular where I felt like there was more creativity in the way it was shot. Like we get lots of close-ups and lots of different angles. It's not like usually pigs in space is all just straight on big mid shot of the control panel with the three of them behind it. And here we get all sorts of different angles, which makes it a much more interesting sketch to watch. Yeah. And more dramatic befitting these stings. <laughs> Let's finish up with Muppet Labs. This week on Muppet Labs, Bunsen has finally devised a solution to the banana problem. This is Muppet Labs, and I'm tickled pink to announce our solution to the banana problem. As you know, once removed from the bunch, bananas cannot be reinserted. This results in extra bananas lying around underfoot, where they can be hazardous to your health. (laughs) I would just like to say that this is not the true banana problem. The real banana problem is when, and this maybe only happens to people who live in walking cities, but it's when you uh, buy a banana, like at Starbucks or a bodega or something and you stick it in your bag and you forget that it's in your bag oh Oh, no oh yeah my my friend jess calls them bag nanas that turn into sad nanas oh that i mean i would say the banana problem is bananas but that's (laughs) because i think they're disgusting (laughs) that's a me problem that is a you problem i love that once again bunsen honeydew has showed up to save us with the solution to a, a problem that really has been plaguing everybody for decades, <laughs> this banana problem. His solution is not, you know, eat your bananas before they go bad or don't take them out of the bunch. <laughs> His solution is to sharpen the bananas so that they can be stored on any vertical surface. <laughs> Which so. I also find not compelling because it seems like in order to do that, that the peel comes off on the sharp edge. I mean, obviously. Right. Uh, I, and then there's and no then way somehow, to make it like, sharp. And then somehow, like, the bananas because, are not squishy. And, right. You know, yeah. Uh, also, I mean, just while we're being pedantic about this, because it's what we do, Beaker enters with, I'm pretty sure, a real bunch of bananas, or at least a very realistic prop bunch of bananas. And then the sharpened bananas are much larger. They somehow get sharpened and also get bigger, just because they had to construct a prop and they they kind of did it wrong. <laughs> and that kind of bugged me, too. Yes. And also, they're very pointy bananas. None of this works. But still, they've sharpened some bananas. <laughs> and... <laughs> Bunsen slingshots them at the wall and does this knife-throwing act, which traps Beaker against the wall with bananas. It's fun. 
And unfortunately, the effect of this is way less convincing than previous knife-throwing acts we've seen, like Lou Zealand and uh, Leslie Uggams. Yeah, there's a clear cut. I think it's I think it's the angle partly that fails to sell it because right with yeah. Lou Zealand, um, it was it's a straight, straight on shot, yeah. and I think that helps with the illusion a little. Bit. Yeah, and this is closer up too. It's still fun though. Yeah. Uh, also fun in case you missed it because I missed it the first time. Uh, Beaker is humming the banana boat song, so shout out to Harry Belafonte when he enters. It's very very cute. Shout out to Christie's boyfriend. Also cute is uh, Beaker saying bye bye. I love it. To your banana problems forever. Yeah. And as always, anytime they do a variation on this joke, I love it. But eyeless Bunsen lifting his glasses to inspect the bananas is is a beautiful touch. It's so good. It's a beautiful bit of puppetry. So much for the prairie dogs. Yeah, now we got to worry about termites. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks to be totally baffled by the Shields and Yarnell episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I have to Sorry, stop Christy. you midstream. Please do. Because... The one-two punch of Richard Rogers dying and the firefighters striking Kansas City has like derailed my brain. <laughs> Is everything like, up to date? Firefighters and on, on strike in Kansas City. Yeah. We ask them to fight fires, they say no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and now um, we're up to date. And now we're up to date. And they 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 can say no, apparently, because they were on strike. <laughs>